Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. Did y'all know that much like we have a gut microbiome, we also have a skin microbiome, which means we have tons of beneficial bacteria on our skin that protect us from pathogens. And did you also know that when you use harsh soaps and chemicals on your body, it can it can kill those bacteria and it can also create other imbalances, pH imbalances, et cetera, within the skin microbiome. So when I learned this information a couple of years ago, I stumbled upon Alivia skincare, and we have been using it exclusively ever since. So Alivia has body cleanser, so it's like a body wash. My entire family uses it, and not only actually do we use it on our skin as body wash, but we also use it for our hair. Like I don't have shampoo for my kids. I use Alivia for my kids. And I love Alivia because not only does it smell amazing, but it's 100% natural and organic. It's non-toxic. It's free of all artificial fragrances and dyes. It's environmentally friendly. And it's not a soap. It is a prebiotic body cleanser. So it actually helps support and nourish that skin microbiome. And it works so well, especially if you have sensitive skin. It can help with eczema, pariasis, body acne, things like that. We love the green tea honeysuckle scent. It smells heavenly. It's so amazing. I usually stock up and get like five bottles at a time so that I can get free shipping. And they last a really long time. Like five or six bottles will last me, my whole family, about a year or so. So you can go to alivia.com. That's A-L-E-A-V-I-A.com and use the code TaylorK15 and that will save you 15% off of all of your Alivia orders. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. Today I have a different kind of topic and guest for you today, but I do think it is indirectly related to parenting and children, and we kind of go over why that is a little bit more in the episode. But I have Tony Brasunas joining us today. So as an independent journalist, Tony Brasunas was censored and sacked by Huffington Post in 2016 for covering the Democratic primary from the wrong perspective. He's been researching censorship, media distortion, and disinformation in America for five years now, with the distinct hope that the underlying facts about fake news in America and the disinformation that is peddled every day in our corporate media will inspire Americans to exercise and defend our rights to free speech and to free press. He grew up in an intentional community in West Virginia, spent an adventurous year in China being lied to by their media, and lives now with his wife and son in Sebastopol, California. So without further ado, let's get to this episode with Tony. I think y'all are going to find it really interesting and informative. 
Hi, Tony. Thanks for being on today. I'm so happy to have you here. Would you mind just first introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, delighted to be here, Taylor. And um, yeah, my name is Tony Brasunas, and um, I am just about to publish my second book, which is called Red, White, and Blind. And it's about uh, media censorship, disinformation. Uh, that's really the focus of it. Um, let's see, I started writing about politics uh, a long time ago, about 20 years ago, but uh, the story of Red, White, and Blind really starts in 2016 when I was covering the Democratic primary and I was censored by the Huffington Post. So I had an interesting experience with that. That kind of kicked it off. Um, a little bit more about me. I live in uh, Sebastopol, California. I have a wife and a five-year-old. Um, not sure what else to say, but we can we can sort of delve in from there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to first hear about the experience you just mentioned where you were censored. Is that a good sure. starting point? Yeah, sure. So, um, so yes, yeah, so if we flash back to 2016, um, right, it was a fairly contentious primary. It turned out on the Democratic side, we had Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And um, I was uh, writing, I wrote an article um, just in my personal blog about uh, the race and about um, privilege. It was this topic that was thrown around a lot. And, you know, if you're, you're privileged, if you do this or that, or it's a sign of your privilege, if you vote for this candidate or that. And I wrote this piece basically saying, um, you know, I think it's the privileged it, it, it's the privileged position if you don't need the things that Bernie Sanders is is promising, such as uh, you know cancellation of debt, um, raising the uh, minimum wage, um, a number of these things. And so it was sort of an alternative perspective that was not in the media as much. And so I got contacted by Huffington Post and like you know we'd like to publish your piece and bring you on as a contributor. So I was like, great, that sounds fine. Um, I was I was covering. So I I came on board with Huffington Post and I was covering it more from the Bernie Sanders perspective. And that was the less common perspective at the time. So a lot of my pieces got a lot of attention. They would get 50,000, 100,000 views, sometimes be on the front page of Huffington Post. And things were going great. I covered pretty much whatever I wanted. I wrote about it from any different perspective. A number of things came up. Um, and then something very interesting happened. I published a piece. We're drawing close to the convention. Uh, this is July of 2016. And... Um, neither Hillary nor Bernie had enough delegates to win the win the nomination outright. So it was going to come down to the superdelegates. I don't know if you remember the superdelegates, who, who are these delegates sort of party bigwigs. They vote with the strength of 10,000 voters, basically. And it was going to come down to their votes at the convention. So I wrote this piece saying, you know, look, at this point, um, we're getting down to the convention. It's going to be up to the superdelegates. We now know Trump uh, has won the nomination on the Republican side. Bernie Sanders is polling better head-to-head uh, -head against Trump. And I think that the, the delegates should select Bernie Sanders as the better candidate to win the, the election. And I made some arguments such as I focused on the trust issue. I said, you know, the polling is the most different between uh, the Clinton side and the Sanders side on the issue of trust. People like uh, particularly independents trust Bernie Sanders a lot more and they don't trust Hillary Clinton as much. And so I think this is a real issue and a real reason we should go with Bernie Sanders. So I argued that case and we could get into like some of the, you know, I, I brought up some of the scandals. I didn't try to like say that they were true, but I was just saying, here's some of the reasons that people maybe have more trust for Bernie Sanders. So I published that piece um, in the evening and then uh, it already had, you know, 20,000 views, 30,000 views. I went to sleep. Um, I woke up the next morning and it was gone. The piece was totally taken down um, and I was sort of confused and stunned by it. And I went around on the Internet and found people like, where's Tony Bersunas' article? I wanted to share it and now it's gone. 
And it turned out some people had sort of copied and pasted it onto like Reddit and to some other platforms. <clears throat> and so it was just a, an interesting experience. I had heard about censorship like that happening. Um, and I had, I had heard about different instances, but to experience it personally was really quite different. And so what was interesting about it, so there was the negative experience of having your writing just taken down, but it led to a positive experience that also gave birth to Red, White and Blind to the book and to what I'm talking about now which is what I call the rise of the new free press. Um, I also call it the new enlightenment. Um, I think there's a real flowering of awareness of knowledge happening right now. And so what happened in that instance, which was really interesting is I, I found the article on a um, minor site, somebody had copied it and pasted it. I put it on my blog, um, my on medium.com. And then I put a link on my Twitter and uh, got on the plane, went to Philadelphia for the convention. And I'm there and a number of people came up to me and the piece had been had been viewed more than any of my other pieces the whole year. So literally Huffington Post had censored me and, and banned me. They, I was off their platform. I was done. I couldn't write for them anymore. Um, I had, didn't have access to their contributor platform or anything. But the piece got more attention than any of those. So it was this really interesting experience that we're in an environment where because of the internet, people can share information directly with each other outside of this intermediation by these large uh, media companies. So that was really the birth of Red, White and Blind was like, so, so the book really, I talk about censorship and disinformation where it's coming from for about half the book. And then I get into this new free press and why we're moving into a, a time of greater awareness and it scares some people, but I think it's ultimately going to lead to a, to a better place. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I, we were talking earlier before we hit record, Tony, about how this podcast is really geared towards parents and you're not my typical type of guest because, you know, from the outside, this topic doesn't really look like it's relevant to parenting, but I actually think it's very relevant to parenting because it's relevant to life and also the information we're consuming, which in our world we're consuming information almost all of the time, it feels like, especially if we spend a lot of time on social media and the internet. Um, but the information that we're consuming really does shape our perception of the world. And it it shapes our experience with the world. And then that shapes what we teach our kids. And so I feel like this is all really relevant for not only just our own experience of the world and what we're teaching our kid, but also so that we can teach our kid to navigate the media world as well. Um, so would you mind telling us what what disinformation is? Because I've heard, I mostly hear the term misinformation. Is there a difference between those two terms? Great. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm delighted to be on here. And I agree, like as a parent, I think it it's really powerful what the narratives, I talk a lot about the narrative, how the narratives form how we make decisions, even whether to have children or not. You know, there's these, there's a lot in the media about, oh, there's overpopulation, we shouldn't have kids. And then every single yes. decision from there on, I call the book Red, White, and Blind because I think we're all in a state of deception. We're all deceived to some extent by the media, and it affects every decision we make from the little tiny ones to the largest, biggest decisions that we make in our life. And I really wanted to, to bring people's attention to that in the same way that we attend to our inner psychological voices, right? Like, oh, I'm not pretty enough or smart enough or rich enough to, to have my dreams. And then you realize, oh, that's coming from these voices I got from my parents, or this is coming from something else. And we can learn to meditate and sort of get into um, self-consciousness and, and self-improvement to look at those. But there's an equally powerful set of voices that aren't inside of us that are coming from without, that are coming into us from the media. And I think that those voices are just as powerful. And so I really wanted to look at those. And that's that's really what Red, White, and Blind is about. Um, so to get back to your question, because I, I think I jumped off there. 
Um, so let's well, say your question again. I'm sorry. I just want to get what, it. Can you tell us what disinformation is? And then is it different from misinformation? Because I think most of us are more familiar with the term misinformation. Sure. So in the at the beginning of the book, I, I, I take apart several of the terms, right? There's also fake news. Um, we also look at bias and um, censorship and what these things are, propaganda, what, what these things are. So I lump three things together, basically fake news, disinformation, and misinformation. They essentially refer to the same thing. There's some intellectual sort of nicety differences. So disinformation is um, you're deliberately trying to deceive somebody and it's deceptive. Misinformation, it's deceptive, but you weren't deliberately trying to deceive someone, mm -hmm. right? So there's a, there's a subtle difference. But really what these words use them in the book is they are labels for narratives that go against the dominant narrative. And they're really actually meaningless words in a certain sense, because we have deceptive narratives coming from the mainstream media, which are never called disinformation or misinformation or fake news. Those labels are used specifically to label news coming from alternative sources, coming from independent media that goes against dominant narratives. So what I, th I think of those terms primarily, and it isn't to say that there isn't some deception in independent media as well as mainstream media. There is, and, it's, and, I, and we really need to get into it and understand where it's coming from. But the deliberate deceptive information is primarily coming from the mainstream media and disinformation, misinformation, these labels are attached to independent media because the dominant mainstream media wants to keep down this new enlightenment, the rise of the free press. They want to stay in control of the narrative. So these labels are used to try to scare people not to go and find their own information, not to go and do their own research. So that yeah. that's how I understand those words and that's how I use them. Okay. Who owns the media and why is this happening? Why does the mainstream media have a specific narrative that they're trying to push and silence any other narratives? Sure. So who owns it? So um, right now there's five giant corporations basically that own almost everything that you hear and see if you're sort of in the mainstream media, right? If you turn on your cable news or you pick up a newspaper or a magazine, unless it's clearly independent media, it's corporate media. And corp so there's those five corporations. We could get into each of them. I don't know if you want to know what each of the five of them are, but essentially what we've seen over the last um, hundred years, which I call the century of propaganda, is the increasing concentration of ownership of the media. And it's very dangerous for our democracy because what it does, is it reduces um, the ability of the press to serve its essential role in a democracy. The, the essential roles of a press in a democracy, the reason we have the free press and free speech in our constitution is because people need to, they need to be informed of a broad variety of opinions so that they can make up their minds. They need to be um, given a bulletin of information. They need accurate information about what's going on. And the third role is what I call watchdog. So we also need a diverse set of uh, press institutions so they can watchdog, um, you know, people in power, the, the large organizations, the corporations, all of those. And we have right now, because of the hundred years of consolidation of media, where it's gotten more and more narrow in the ownership, the mainstream media doesn't really serve any of those three roles very well. Um, in fact, I would say they're failing all three pretty dr dramatically, particularly the watchdog role. I mean, when you have five corporations that own the media, their interests are very similar to the interests of those that they should be watched, that they should be watching. 
So you have something that comes along, like, I mean, we could get into a topic around parenting um, and you have something like, you know, like, let's say it's, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to anti-bed sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Or or, right. Sleep training. Yeah. Sleep training. I mean, you, you, you'll have an interest that like the corporate media that, that a corporation has and the corporate media is driven by what I call systemic bias. In addition to nefarious bias, we can get into that as well, which is a little more like direct nefarious manipulation. But systemic bias is a little bit more, um, it's more common and it's it's not quite as like evil sounding because it's just, you have systemic bias, which is, you know, if you work at a large, big media corporation, you're going to be aware that you don't write articles that go against the advertisers, you don't go against the the ownership interests of your parent corporation, right? So your parent corporation will have interests different than maybe. So the fact that, you know, like CNN was owned by AT&T, right? Although they just went through this interesting realignment. But so if AT&T has interests about like they want to, you know, be able to have a monopoly on telecommunication services on the West Coast or something like that, you're not going to have CNN a big expose about how AT&T wants to like take over all of the the telecommunications, right? They're just not going to do that because of the interests of the parent corporation. And those conflicts of interest are throughout our culture. I mean, from the FDA, CDC, um, SEC, like all of these regulatory bodies are increasingly captured by who they're supposed to be regulating. And the media is not watchdogging it because they're also captured by those same corporations. Mm -hmm. So it's a real, it's a huge problem. It's a really huge problem. And so the rise of the independent media is what I see as the solution. It's this sort of natural immune system in our democracy that's that's kicking up and creating, uh, you know, podcasts like yours and like some of the other ones I've been on, and like my book, you know, because we we see these things. Those of us that are pay attention, paying attention, we notice these, and so that's um, that's where I take hope and and some solace that things are getting better. Yeah, yeah. I talk about this all the time. And that reminded me of um, Cheryl Atkinson, I think is her, how you pronounce her last name, um, has a TED talk. Have you seen this called It's About AstroTurfing? So this is a great, so Cheryl Atkinson is great. I, I highlight her. So in my book, I have what's called a balanced media diet, where I highlight 40 sources to sort of balance your media diet. And I talk a lot about mm-hmm. looking at your media consumption, the way you look at your diet. Um, so Cheryl Atkinson is in there. I think she's great. Um, and I talk a lot about astroturfing, but I haven't seen this Ted talk. So, so it's tell me really about it. good. It's really, really good. Um, I share it a lot and it is basically, so it's kind of what you just described astroturfing, how, um, these companies, these corporations hire people that are like, for example, maybe online, um, posing as just individuals, um, making commentary about a product and saying, this is so great. Or the people that are saying this product is dangerous are conspiracy theorists. And so it almost makes it seem like as if you as an individual is you're questioning something, you're crazy, you are alone because everyone else thinks that this thing is so great. And so pharmaceutical companies use it a lot. Um, and really when you dive into the research, it doesn't show what the claims that ha- the claims that are being presented, the actual research doesn't show that. But then on the same light, so if you have this pharmaceutical product, for example, these pharmaceutical companies are now going to doctors' conventions and educational 
seminars and things like that, and they're funding them. And so those doctors and the lecturers are presenting about the benefits of this pharmaceutical product because they're being funded and paid by the pharmaceutical company. Yet again, those claims don't actually match the research. And then sometimes we get into another issue. I could talk about this all day long. This is like my hot, like my hot topic, my hot button thing. Um, sometimes we also get into this issue of the actual research, peer-reviewed evidence that is funded by pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. And the research shows that you know, studies that are funded by industry are more likely to be favorable, have favorable outcomes than those that aren't. Yeah. And so we it's have to look way. at all. So it's even, you know, I just mentioned bed sharing. There's this big anti-bed sharing narrative in our society. And there's all the time there's propaganda from the AAP. And it's kind of not exactly the same because the AAP isn't a media source per se, Um or a media company, but it's a similar thing in that the AAP is funded by pharmaceutical companies and formula companies. And um, there's all of these complex financial entanglements within all of these corporations, as you just discussed. So I feel like it, it goes even beyond just the media. It's it's every governing organization basically in our country, it feels like. No, those are all great points. And um, yeah, I could talk about that for the rest of the time we have here too. There, those are fascinating topics. Yeah, what I what I call that, and this isn't a term I made up, it's it's a term that's out there is regulatory capture, right? Which yeah. is when the regul like the FDA is captured by, you know, because they get so much money from the corporations they're regulating, they're not, they're no longer um able to do their job. And this is definitely happening um at the CDC, for instance. They're you know, big pharma, you know, is, you know, along with the big banks and the big weapons companies, maybe you could argue the fossil fuel, big pharma is the largest purchaser of advertising on corporate media. They're the large, they fund a huge amount of everything that CDC does, the FDA, to a lesser extent, the FDA, but then also, you know, throughout our university system. I mean, I think before the whole COVID thing, um, I tended to think, oh, yeah, big pharma has a lot of influence, but you know, our academic institutions are independent and like the scientists there are like really doing good science. But yeah, then you read some of the things you like you were just saying, and you see that the studies that come out of these, uh, even like some of our most prestigious academic institutions are funded largely by the big pharma. And they tend to, absolutely, they tend to show what the big pharma wants. Because you figure this out, it's not rocket science, right? It's like, right. oh, if I find this, I get funded and I, I get my six-figure salary and I have a prestigious professorship at this prestigious university. If my study finds this, I don't get the money. I don't get the professorship. It's like, you know, you're going to have some principled people and there's going to be some people that rationalize sort of trying to find the middle path. You're going to have a lot of people that take the money and take the prestige. So yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. And so the reason I focus on the media in this you know, and I did think about writing also about the political parties and how how we have real big issues with our two political parties, is that um, I think the media forms this, it forms the narrative and it forms the story. And we're storytelling beings, right? Like from before we had writing, before we could write things down, we told each other stories. That's how we come to believe things. So why astroturfing is so powerful is because we have this real desire to fit in and not to be outside of the herd and not to have ideas about how it's maybe how we're raising our children. That's a powerful one, right? If we, if we make a choice about how we're gonna raise our children that's different from our friends or from our group on social media, it's a really, you know, cognitive dissonance and we get, we get very uncomfortable. And so the media knows this, and this has been studied now for over a hundred years since the beginning of propaganda in the 1920s. 
it's very, very powerful. And so I, I find that the media narrative and how people are told to think about something, what the story is, like how our lives are developing against, you know, what the backdrop is of our lives. It's such a powerful part of it. Yeah. And I think you mentioned a really important term is that cognitive dissonance, because I always wonder how can people not see what's going on? Like when I'm telling them and I'm showing them evidence of it, how can they refuse to see? Because I have family members that will not believe. They think I am just a crazy conspiracy theorist. And I have evidence to back up all of what I'm saying. Um, and I, it's because it's this cognitive dissonance. It's this painful process, I think, to realize that your what you've believed your entire life, what you've been told is maybe not quite what it seems. And that maybe I think it's also very easy to think that you can just trust everybody. You can just trust the government and trust the media. And that's really easy because you just go to other people for answers and advice and guidance, and you can just trust them. But when you realize that, hey, maybe they're not quite as trustworthy as I thought. And now I actually have to put my own time and energy and research into it. And I have to use some critical thinking skills and it's confusing. It's just this painful, uncomfortable process. And I think a lot of people can't maybe cope with that at any given point. What are your thoughts on why some people just still don't see this and they just think it's a big conspiracy theory that the mainstream media isn't always right. And maybe they have some, some ulterior motives. Yeah, so um, I get into the conspiracy theorist term because it's such a powerful term. And I, and again, I'm really into language. And so I spent a whole like half a chapter basically just looking at that specific term because it's used uh, so commonly, so powerfully. I So my sense of this is that to some extent, people want to stay in their tribe, right? I think that's a large driver. And so if you have, so so we have these sort of, there's there's a dozen tribes or there's more, but there's sort of these two tribes that right? you have sort of like the Democrat blue tribe and you have the sort of Republican red tribe and people want to stay within that group and not think of something outside of it. So you take controversial issues like, you know, like the COVID lockdowns or the vaccines, or you take something like January 6th and you're supposed to think about those the way that your tribe does. And so for most people, well, there's so there's two impulses. I think on one hand, we have this impulse, this very powerful human impulse to fit into the tribe. And this goes back to when we were hunter gatherers. And if you thought outside of the tribe, when the food was scarce, you might not get any, right? When the tribe moved on to the next valley, you might be left behind. I mean, it's a very, very powerful thing to fit in. And that goes way back into the you know inner reaches of our brain. We have this other impulse to know the truth. Because, you know, whether it was the shaman in the tribe or whoever it was, there's always been this real advantage to actually figuring out the truth about things. And we never totally can know the truth. We're constantly learning about our environment. We had to discover fire and we had to, you know, discover whether, you know, why, why uh, plants grow or why the moon changes and stuff like that. So we have these two powerful impulses and they kind of sometimes conflict with each other. And some people will kind of be more driven by one, other by, by the other. I'm somebody obviously more driven by the one to know the truth. Um, and I've lost friends over some of my ideas and that's, and it's, I don't like it. It's, it's not a fun experience. That's um, and I have yeah. cognitive dissonance, but you know, ultimately I'm driven more by, I want to know the truth. And if that means I lose some friends, I'm going to make some new friends, you know, and maybe those mm -hmm. friends will be better friends or I'll have. So, so what I try to get into though, with the book, cause I wanted to write a book that could appeal to both tribes, because I think with red, white, and blind with the title, we're both deceived, we're all deceived. And so what I do is I start the book with some 
some stories that I think cut across. So I, so I jump right into Jeffrey Epstein, the Jeffrey Epstein story, right? Which is such an awful, awful story. And it really cuts across. There's nobody who's like, oh no, Jeffrey Epstein, that was fine. Like running a pedophilia ring at the apex of the like power establishment of the Western world, hundreds of girls, probably thousands, sexual traffic. I mean, it's just completely, you, you almost can't imagine something worse. It's so bad. And yet the media, for some reason, didn't tell the story about that for 20 years. For 20 years, it was hidden, right? Until finally this journalist in Miami kind of writes this story in 2019 and it blows up. And then I talk also about the origin of, of the coronavirus um, and why that was censored for, for like a year and a half. You were a crazy conspiracy theorist mm -hmm. if you said, look, there's a lab just down the street from where they're saying it came out of this market. And the lab is literally studying bat coronaviruses and they, oh, and they receive money from the NIH to like try to make them more dangerous. And then we have this, you know, this virus that comes out of Wuhan and, but we're not allowed to talk about it. And right. so I think that one also cuts across the spectrum, right? People are like, yeah, that is strange. It would have been amazing to have known the origin of the virus within a couple of weeks or months, we would have known much better how to treat it, where it was likely, how it was likely to evolve. All of these things that led to certainly loss of life, you know, and the media is responsible for that. I mean, the New York Times still has not had a balanced article about the origin of the virus. And I document that throughout, you know, I look at NPR, the New York Times, I also look at Fox, you know, I look at all of these different sources, and then I look at independent media. So I, so my sense of it is, yes, absolutely, there's this issue of tribalism and, and also cognitive dissonance and this, this desire not to, not to step out of line. But what I what I draw the parallel to is again the new enlightenment, and I I draw a parallel to the original enlightenment, right, which was birthed by the founding, uh, the invention of the movable print, uh, movable type printing press, which basically allowed books to be printed much much more cheaply, and that led to literacy, and that led to people writing books and reading books and sharing, and that led to a terror among the the power establishment of the time, which was the feudal system and the Catholic mm -hmm. Church. And so immediately they labeled everybody with these words. It wasn't conspiracy theorists then, it was blasphemer and heretic, right? And it's like, you're a heretic. You're saying something that's, you know, you're saying the earth is maybe not the center of the galaxy. We're going to throw you on the rack. We're going to torture you. And we're going to, you know, we're going to burn the witches at the stake, you know, whatever it is, right? But it didn't work. I mean, it, it caused some awful scenarios, but ultimately we had the new, we had the enlightenment. And that led to the idea of science that we can, Science is a, is a method of learning the truth, right? Where we can move towards the truth objectively. And so you have all these scientists who were not driven by fitting in. They were driven by desire for truth. That also led to democracy and why we have the right, the freedom of speech and the freedom of press, the freedom of religion. It was a fabulous flowering of, of human potential that happened through the Renaissance and the Reformation. Um, the Enlightenment led to the United States of America, it led to France. Lots of problems also, obviously, like, you know, in terms we could get into some of the issues with why um, there were some problems, but we're, we're moving in a good direction, I would say, overall, um, in history there. So, so this is a similar scenario, the invention of the internet is also leading to this huge flowering of the ability of people to share information way more than way, way more than the printing press then now suddenly, you and I can have this conversation, say something that we're not supposed to say in the mainstream media, upload it, and a thousand or a million or a billion people can watch it and it can change the world, right? Mm -hmm. So that is what's happening. And yes, there are lots of people that are still gonna stay in the old model. And 
there's not much you can do about it. People are going to wake up and see things on their own, on their own timing is all I can say. I, I've had many conversations with friends, some of whom are like, I can't talk to you anymore. We disagree about this. Stay out of my life. But I've had all these unexpected people that like I wasn't even that close to reach out to me and be like, wow, Tony, somebody is finally saying what I see. And somebody is finally putting this together. And this is helping me so much. And, you know, because people are like losing, you know, the, this increasing increasing bifurcation is causing people to lose friends, lose family members, connection with like even spouses. I, I had this woman tell me how she couldn't talk to her husband anymore because of their different views on the, on the news. So my hope is that in bringing this out and looking at how we're all being deceived can allow us to reconnect with each other. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, you're talking about how social media has just really, it's like this new enlightening. And I agree with that. And at the same time, I almost think it also adds this new element of making it even more difficult to speak out about things because you have, you open yourself up to bombardment from and attacks from all kinds of different people. And so for some people, like if you don't have a well-regulated nervous system and you have a hard time dealing with that, it's hard. And I find that, you know, I self-censor myself a lot. I have a fairly large social media account and I like to talk about issues like this, but at the same time, it's just a lot for me to have to deal with the responses or anticipate the responses that are going to like the negative responses. And like, it just creates nervous system dysregulation. And, um, but I do agree. Like I have found when I do talk about more controversial topics. Um, I've talked about, you know, in the past, I have talked about like the COVID lockdowns a little bit. I talk, I've talked about vaccine mandates. I've talked about things like that. And I have found that as much as I'm like gearing myself up ready for people to just attack me and call me dangerous and awful and all of this, all of these things that does happen. But most people overwhelmingly say, thank you for having this conversation. I agree with you. You're talking, you're speaking in a reasonable way. You're bringing up multiple points and most people are appreciative and they're just feeling like they can't go anywhere to talk about this stuff. So um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, positive and negative at the same time, the internet and social media. And just, I don't think that we are meant to have access to so much information and so many people's opinions, especially about what we're saying and what we're doing. So that can also make it really hard. I've had the exact same experiences where I'll like, you know, prepare my newsletters or my emails and I'm, I'm just ready. I'm like bracing myself for like all the hate mail and I get a few, but then I get you know, almost 10 times as much positive things, you know, yeah. like, thank you so much. And so, yeah, I think there's, you know, there, there's a lot of people that see this and experience this and don't feel they can speak out. And so I feel as somebody, I have a relatively thick skin. I don't, it, it takes a lot for somebody to really kind of get under my skin. And I'm really driven to figure out the truth as much as I can. Of course, nobody can figure out the capital T truth, but you know, and so I kind of almost feel it's my duty to do this because a lot of the people I think that want to aren't able to for whatever reason. Maybe they just don't have the time. I'm lucky because I have a job that allows me some time. So that so I have two jobs. Um, so that's why I do it. Um, yeah. And I, I think you and I could really have a lot of conversations about those exact experiences. Um, and then to get to your other point. Yeah. I mean, so so there's a real war on right now for our minds. And that's what I also get into. We have this new enlightenment that's flowering, but we also have the existing 
dinosaurs of the media that it's so powerful to control the narrative of a society. It's more powerful than controlling all the money because you can control the story. So that allows you to, that's why you've always seen in repressive regimes, one of the first things they do is they try to reduce the media. They try to censor the media. They try to control it. So we have this real war on right now. You have independent media is growing. It's growing. It's just flowering. It's thousands of thousands of new flowers every day, basically. Um, and you have these dinosaurs that want to keep things as they are. And so, yes, yeah, so social media right now is kind of the battleground in a sense. It's one of the main battlegrounds. And it has such power and such potential and also such peril. Because on the one hand, social media can facilitate this awakening where we can share thoughts with it, with each other. I mean, in 2016, Facebook was a dream for me. It was perfect. I had this amazing experience. I built this huge audience over my, my writing. And then now on Facebook, it, it isn't the same. It, it really has, um, I, I'd have to, we'd have to spend a whole nother hour talking about Facebook, but mm -hmm. I, I know what you're saying. And I think it's because, and I really get into this, we are seeing censorship really crack down on social media, particularly over the last two years. I started writing the book in 2019 when these things were happening, but they weren't as intense. And then as I was writing, COVID happened and the lockdowns and the, the vaccine mandates and the censorship and the, the whole thing, it, my book just became easier and harder to write. It was easier to write because there were many more examples, but harder to like try to get everything in there. I mean, my book is finally, it's going to be, you know, about 400 pages. It's a large book. So Yes. What So what I say at the end of the day, where I kind of put my flag down is about censorship. I think that censorship is the one evil that our democracy and our science cannot withstand. You cannot have an enlightenment based society with censorship because democracy needs all ideas in order to make good choices. Science needs all possibilities considered in order to find the truth. Because innovation always happens at the edges. You don't have innovation happening in the mainstream. If you just follow the mainstream, it's just going to, the, the power structures that exist are going to continue to control things. They don't really need new inventions. If they're if you already control everything, why do you want any new inventions to come along? You wouldn't even want the internet. You know, probably people that were, you know, the, the most wealthy people, why would they want the internet, right? But on the other hand, so what I so if we can unite as a group, this is one of the reasons I wrote the book, and say that censorship is an evil, and we do not want this. We have to support free speech, which means, by the way, supporting speech that you despise. It means right. it means not just supporting. I want everybody to say everything they want as long as they agree with me. That's the the Mao. That's the Hitler. That's the Stalin version of free speech. They love that kind of free speech. We have to be able to withstand speech that we despise, that we dislike and say, I completely disagree with you and I will defend your right to say it. With that, we can have everything. We can have democracy, we can have science because what happens is when bad ideas come out, you agree or you disagree with a vaccine mandate, you agree or you disagree with you know, a lockdown, that's fine, let's have the discussion and let's, let's really look at everything then I think we can move forward. And naturally, the new enlightenment will, will unfold. We will have, like we did at the founding of the country, we will have thousands of media sources, not just five corporations owning, owning everything. And I think we can move forward as a society. So that's my sense. But yes, there is a war right now on social media. And that censorship is, is increasing. And, and it might get worse before it gets better. And so I just want to warn everybody, doesn't mean close your social media accounts. But maybe start to open up to new ones. Maybe if Twitter and Facebook are not going to reform and they're not going to and they're going to continue to censor, start using other ones. There, you know, there's there's a whole 
range of them. So those are my thoughts on that. Yeah. I totally agree. I, so I'm just, it's so interesting to me because there are so many people that are for censorship and how have they been so fooled into believing that censorship is a good idea? It's, it's amazing to me because I wonder, did you not have history in school? Did you not ever read about history? Censorship is never a good idea, but people have been um, persuaded to believe that we should be censoring and especially on social media, limiting misinformation and disinformation and fat, you know, these fact checkers that are actually not fact checkers at all. Um, it, it's just so interesting to me. I don't, I can't get it. I can't comprehend it because I've never thought censorship was a good idea. And I can't understand why someone would, would believe that. Well, it's because you have values, you have principles that you hold to and that they don't change with the with the blowing, shifting winds. And I'm the same. And I have a very similar sense of like, how did we go from, especially on the left, you know, it's like, I come from the left. I come, you know, I talked about Bernie Sanders. I come from that, but I've gone through my own evolution. I, I'm kind of politically homeless right now. I see both problems and possibilities on both sides of the aisle. But, you know, so I consider myself what's called a classical liberal, like a classic liberal, which is really in some ways more like a Republican in the sense that you believe in free speech. Uh, you believe in, um, you know, relatively smaller government, you know, some of these things. But you believe that, you know, everybody should a progressive in the old sense that we should continuously push wealth and power out to more people so that more we should we dis- we should distribute wealth and power. So these are sort of what used to be like liberals now, yeah, what a liberal is, it's a really hard thing to figure out. Um, because yeah, how, how can you call yourself a liberal and you think that there should be censorship? It's completely anathema to the idea of liberalism. It's it's like the opposite. So how did these people become convinced? So there's this term out there called free speech absolutism, which is a, which is a, which is a narrative that was created by people that want to reduce free speech. And it's this idea that somehow you could be there's like an absolutist that you could be too much for free speech. And it's so that people then kind of say, well, I'm not a free speech absolutist, which means you support censorship in some instances. And I just think it's a, you know, pardon my French, it's a BS uh, term. I I think it doesn't, it's not a real thing. You either for free speech or you're not. It's like, you're either, you know, you're either for murder, you know, being okay, or you're not, there's not like a middle ground. You either support free speech means you support people being able to say things that you disagree with, or you don't. And so I think it's important to, to, when you see these debates about free speech, realize that that debate is being manipulated very certainly by people that want censorship, that people want to, you know, the mainstream media, they, the the corporate media, the five corporations, they want to have censorship because it's one of their main weapons of continuing their dominance over the narrative. And that's, that is their power. That is their treasure. That is their cave of gold that the dragon wants to defend is the control over the narrative. Because one of the things I talk about is um, why 2016 was so interesting and why I think that was the kickoff of our modern media world. You had on the right, you had Trump, and on the left, you had Bernie Sanders campaign. And they were both able to take control of the mainstream narrative for brief periods during that time through their own independent media. We had never seen that before. Like with the Barack Obama campaign, it was starting, there was starting to be social media and stuff like that, but it was not like what happened in 2016, where these two anti-establishment candidates, Trump on the right and Bernie on the left, and their army of just people that really wanted change, wanted political change, um, were able to use independent media and social media and control and take over the mainstream corporate narrative. 
where suddenly like the columnists at the New York Times or like the Wall Street Journal had to address narratives that were being brought up from outside of the corporate media. And that was terrifying to them because that was the beginning of them seeing, okay, the end may be near where we don't have control over the narrative anymore. And so that that was the beginning of the term fake news, which is the predecessor to disinformation and misinformation. Fake news came out, I don't know if you remember this, right at the end of 2016, right before the election, suddenly this term that had not existed before, I mean, basically had never been used. You can do like Google searches on, on a, a different timeframes. Fake news went from zero to a thousand where everything was suddenly fake news. And fake news is this huge issue. And Russia managed the, you know, changed the, the election, which there's almost no evidence of. I mean, basically zero evidence. Fake news was able to change it. And so we've seen this sort of continue with disinformation and misinformation. These are the new labels. And I think we just need to see them for what they are. They are pretexts for censorship. Would you say that in your research and experience, is there one, you know, quote unquote side for simplicity's sake that is either does more censoring or is more censored their ideas? You mean like blue or red, like yeah. Republican or Democrat? Um. So I try to kind of steer clear from that because both sides really do this. I, I think it's we could get into it a little bit. I mean, right now you you have both sides talking about censorship. You have the right talking about censorship. And, and I think in my research right now in 2022, the censorship that's being called out on the right, I think is more valid. Um, the censorship that's being called out on the left is uh, people saying books are being banned in schools that, you know, like so I, I was listening to something. It was, it was a left leaning. I try to do my balanced media diet. So I listened to all sides and it was a left-leaning person talking about how Toni Morrison was banned in some school district. And right, so that like, we're not gonna allow kids, so this is this sort of white supremacist argument that I'm, I'm suspicious of, but that we're not gonna allow kids to read a black author was the implication. I don't think that that's really going on. And I, I, I shouldn't say that. I think it's not going on in a significant degree relative to what the right is talking about right now. I think, of course, we should be concerned if school boards are banning important books. You know, I read Beloved by Toni Morrison. It's probably not a high school book, but it's it's a college book. I think it's it's worthwhile. Um, or maybe it's high school. We could get into it. You know, I'm not going to pronounce on that. But, um, but the right is talking about social media censorship and specifically how the government has been using their connection, their power over regulation of the social media companies to enforce censorship. And that is cutting right at the constitution. The constitution basically says the government can't make a law infringing free speech. So when you have, you know, a half dozen or two dozen Democrats get up in Congress and say, you know, Facebook, if you don't censor more, we're going to remove section 230. Section 230 is basically what allows social media companies to allow things to be published and not be politically, not be liable for what's said. So it's this real power over social media that Congress wields. And if they're doing that and at the same time saying you have to censor these people and they're literally calling out people that should be censored, that is a real direct threat to free speech and like our democracy. The stuff that's being called out on the left right now is is significant. It's real, but it's I think it's way, way lower down on my concern right now. Um, so, but you know, I. I think 20 years ago, it was not that way. I think 20 years ago, you had, you know, the ACLU used to actually be for free speech. <laughs> you know, yeah. you used to have like civil libertarians in the Democratic Party that had, you know, real say. That's gone. I, I don't think there's very many people in the Democratic Party right now in leadership that that would qualify as a civil libertarian under how we used to look at that term. And 
So without picking sides, because I want both sides to be able to see this and see that I think it's even deeper than that. It's it's this idea that you have to understand, like right now you might think like, oh, well, censorship's fine because I like who's in the White House. I like who has control of Congress. And so that's good. They should censor and protect me. But you have to realize that if you have a peaceful democratic system, the power, the party in power is going to change. So you have to imagine, do I want when somebody I don't like gets the White House and takes control of Congress, do I want to have this precedent of censorship? Because it's always going to come back on your views. If you have any, everybody has at least one view that's not in the mainstream. I mean, there's no, right? So do you really want to not have a principled stance on this, that we need free speech regardless of who's in the White House, regardless of who's controlling Congress, because eventually the party in power will switch. So I, I really want people to look at it from that side and take a principled stance that, we need to we need to have free speech and we need to get rid of censorship so that all ideas can be heard. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tony, thank you so much. This has been so great, so informative. Can you just tell our listeners where we can find you, what resources you have, et cetera? Sure. So uh, Red, White and Blind is my new book. It's going to be out in November, uh, probably right around Thanksgiving. Um, so I would love for you to come find that at my tonybersunas.com is my main website. I also have redwhiteandblind.com. So you can go there and find the book. Redwhiteandblind.com, tonybersunas.com. I also have a substack, which is redwhiteandblind.substack.com. And then I'm Tony Bersunas on Twitter and Facebook. So find awesome. me at any of those places. And uh yeah. Great. Oh, and I meant to ask you, I forgot. You were talking about a balance this balanced media diet. Do you have is that in your book or is there anywhere? Is that where people have to go to find it? Yes, it's in the book. I also have balancedmediadiet.com. Um, it's not that I didn't mention that website because it's not fully ready yet. It doesn't have like, I'm going to try to make it a little more interactive. There's a little bit more development of that website that's going to happen, but you can go there. I think right now it's, um, I think it has my diet from 2021 still there. There's going to be a new diet for 2023, which is going to come out right at the same time as the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, the idea of the balanced media diet, I think is a really powerful one. I, I think it's it's an idea that, we can, by balancing our media diet, it doesn't mean you have to change your ideas on everything, but you can understand the viewpoint of others. And that I think is the path towards rekindling your connections with maybe family or friends that you've lost. So like there could be a really controversial issue like the vaccines or like abortion. And you you don't change your mind by understanding the reasons that people feel differently than you do. And that happens through a balanced media diet. Also, what happens to a balanced media diet is where we develop our own inner bullshit detector to pardon my French again, but like you, you, you can, this is a manufactured narrative and this over here is not. And I think that's as important as understanding diverse viewpoints. So both of those happen through a balanced media diet, which is why I recommend it. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. This has been awesome. Thanks so much, Taylor. My pleasure. And uh, yeah really delighted. And I'd be happy to be back um, at another time. And yep, my book will be out in November. Wonderful. Hey guys, if you like this podcast, if you appreciate any of the episodes and have found them helpful to you, would you please do me a favor and go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review? Those reviews really help this podcast reach more people. So I would so appreciate that. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.